Well, thank you everybody for coming. Uh, this morning, we're gonna talk about a theological controversy that threatened what you might say is the very heart of Christianity early, early on in its history. Uh, there have been theological controversies in Christianity really since the very beginning. In the Bible, you can read about Paul's debate with uh, this group called the Judaizers, people that were arguing that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian. Uh, you can read in uh, the Apostle John arguing or, or argue, arguing against uh, a person or people that said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but maybe wasn't really. So throughout the church history, I mean, there have just been lots of debates, lots of controversies, uh, some less important than others. I mean, you could think of the last few decades. If, I mean, some of you younger ones might not be aware of this, but there was a lot of debate about the type of musical styles that were appropriate in church. Well, I mean, if the words of what you're singing are good, the musical style just matters a lot less, right? But just the amount of uh, passion that was devoted to those debates, uh, maybe not proportional to the importance of what was being discussed. But what we're going to talk about today, incredibly important and, and vital to the, the heart of Christianity. So imagine that you didn't have 20 centuries of Christian thought and writing behind you, and you had to answer some of these questions. Did Jesus have a human soul? If God is transcendent, right, if he's ab above his creation, how can creation have any relation or relationship with God? Did the Son know as much as the Father did? And when I say the Son and the Father, these are just shorthand ways of saying God the Son, God the Father. If God's essence can't be divided, how could the Son be of one substance with the Father? Did the Father create the Son before time began? Or has the Son always existed? I would imagine even today, you, you might have paused on some of these and, and had to think, what, how, how would I answer that? I had thought about doing like a, a heresy quiz in the beginning here and making you like write down your answers or stand up or sit down depending on how you would answer different things, but um, I, I didn't. Well, these types of questions occupied the early church for quite a long time and, and they're important. Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And how you answer that question is one of the most important answers you could ever give. Well, today we're going to talk about some of the history behind some of the, these questions, well, not these questions in particular, but, but the question of whether Jesus was really God or not. And that's, that's the debate that we're going to be talking about today. So we'll talk about the history. We're going to then take a step back and talk about some of the theology involved. Like how did people, what did people believe and why did they believe it? And then we're gonna talk about some takeaways. Like why, why does this matter for us today? So let's talk about the history first. There was this guy named Arius. He was, uh, by the way, your, your handout has two sides. If you're the note-taking type, um, on the back, we've got some room for you to take notes. Um, you don't have to, but it's, it's there if you want it. Um, so anyway, back to Arius. He was this North African priest. He was born around 250 AD. 
Um, he may have been born in Libya. We're not 100% sure. He was a student in Antioch, and he became a deacon in this city called Alexandria when this guy named Peter was a bishop there. So our church government today, we've got like deacons, and then we've got pastors who were also called elders or presbyters or overseers or shepherds. I mean, like it's all the same thing, the way we're viewing church government. It's not how they were viewing church government. So you'd have uh, deacons and then above them, you'd have like these priests or or presbyters and above them, you'd have bishops. So that's just kind of the way they they structured things. Um, So Arius became a deacon sometime between 300 and 311. That's when Peter was, was bishop. He was excommunicated pretty quickly, like kicked out, or at least denied um, the ability to, to participate in the Lord's Supper, uh, because he was associating with this, this faction group of Christians. Um, Peter was martyred in 311, and the next bishop that was in Alexandria allowed uh, Arius to come back. So Arius then started to serve as a priest. He was incredibly popular as in, in his position. Like people, I, I think, really liked, liked the guy. So that's, that's kind of the, the background of who Arius was, and um, things were about to blow up. So uh, sometime, not sure exactly where, but between uh, 318 and 323 AD, in that five-year period, six-year period, um, Arius got into this conflict with the person who was the bishop at the time in Alexandria. His, his name was Alexander. So it's a little, little bit of a tongue twister, the Alexander of Alexandria. And Arius said that Alexander denied monotheism. So monotheism is this belief that there's only one God. All right, so if you're going to go and accuse a church leader of believing in multiple gods, like that's, that's pretty serious, right? Like if, if so John's here, so if John were preaching in his next sermon, he was like, oh, by the way, there's more than one God. Mm, I've got kind of a problem with that. And so we would probably, you know, that, that would become a thing in our, our church if, if John were to say something like that. And so anyway, Arius was accusing Alexander of this. So Alexander believed that the Father and the Son were, were both God, right? Like we would totally agree with that. Probably sounds normal to you. But Arius thought that if you've got two beings who were both divine, who were both God, well, that must mean that you've got two gods. Okay. He was wrong, but that's, that's kind of that's what he was thinking. That's where he was going. Well, Alexander shoots back and said that Arius was denying the divinity or the godhood of, of the Son of God, of, of the Word. And, and so they would use this, they would say the Word a lot. I mean, this was kind of in their language. So like in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so this is referring to, um, referring to Jesus, but, but you, you could say maybe before the incarnation, right? Before the Son of God took on humanity. Um, so anyway, so when I say the Word, you could just think the Son of God. Like th- those are somewhat equivalent statements. Um, so the church had worshipped Jesus from the very beginning. So if Arius was denying that the Word was divine or that the Word was God, well, that means that, that Jesus wasn't God. And if the church is worshiping Jesus and Jesus wasn't God, well, that's a problem. And so you could stop worshiping Jesus. Well, that, that wasn't great, the way they were thinking, right? At least some of them. Or you could just 
continue to worship a creature, which also wasn't a good alternative, right? So like there were some theological problems here that needed to be worked through. Well, Alexander condemned Arius' teachings and fired him. So he was no longer allowed to serve in the church. Well, Arius had two things going for him. Well, his doctrine wasn't one of them, right? So uh, bad, bad beliefs, that, so that was, that was not good. But he had two things that were going for him. He had powerful friends, and he was really good at propaganda. So Arius appealed to the people of Alexandria, and he appealed to some of his friends that were bishops in other places, pretty, you know, at some, you know, shortly after that, or sometime after that, there were popular demonstrations in Alexandria. People marched in the streets. They were chanting Arius' slogans. Uh, his friends that were bishops were writing letters on his behalf saying that he was right and that Alexander was, was teaching false doctrine. Uh, so this thing that began as a dispute between two people, just, it blew up, right? It started to spill over into the life of, of the church in Alexandria, and it spread beyond there. Now, Constantine was emperor by this point, and he had converted to Christianity. He wanted a unified church. So he had a vested interest in what was going on in Christianity at the time. Uh, his personal envoy tried unsuccessfully to reconcile these two parties, like Alexander's followers and Arius' followers, in 322. Um, in March of 324, Alexander held a synod, which is just like a, a religious meaning of, of religious leaders. So in, uh, in 324, that happened. They acknowledged a truce between these two groups, right? So that sounded positive, but they condemned Arius. Arius responded by publishing some writings of, of his beliefs and refusing the truce. So he wasn't going along with this. Well, Osseus, this is Constantine's envoy, um, shared this synod, another one, in Antioch in early 325, condemning Arius' teachings, right? So th this was like, this is public stuff, right? And, um, but this threatened to divide the Eastern church. So at the time, there were these Western-speaking, uh, Western-Latin-speaking Christians and people in the East who spoke Greek. This mostly affected the, the people that spoke Greek. Well, Constantine called uh, what we call this first ecumenical council in May 20th of 325. That's when it started. And it lasted for a while, lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. The main issue was, was the word of God or the son of God, the, the word that they, they may have used was like co-eternal. Was, was the word of God eternal just like the father was? Arius would say no, right? And then people who believed what we would say was orthodox would say, well, actually, yes, he was. So he called this council, approximately uh, 200, 300 bishops attended, mostly from the East, and there were a few groups. Um, one group were, were the Arians, so the people that followed Arius, a relatively small group. There were people that followed Alexander, and then there was like everybody else that just really didn't fall into either of these two camps. And the sort of the, the everybody else group, they were hoping for a really quick resolution to this. They wanted a compromise. Um, they didn't want division in the church any more than we would want division in our church. 
But uh, when, when this guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia started explaining Arius' view that the Son of God was just a creature, uh, the bishops shouted him down. They were like, what? No way. They didn't really say it that way, but they were like, you lie, or blasphemy, or heresy. Um, Justo Gonzalez, a, a church historian, says that, that, that so Eusebius' speech was snatched from his hand, torn to shreds, and trampled underfoot. So people got kind of heated about this, um, rightly so. So this moved people from hoping for a compromise to wanting to reject Arianism. The assembly tried to refute Arianism by just appealing to Bible verses, but Arius also appealed to Bible verses, or I, I should say Arianists, like Eusebius and his group. Arius actually was not allowed to participate in this council because he wasn't a bishop, right? So only bishops allowed at the time. Um, so they both had their Bible verses, and they found that they, they couldn't just use the language of the Bible to refute Arius's teaching. I'll, I'll get more into that later, because that, that's going to be an important point in this. So they decided to, to create this creed that clearly refuted or excluded Arianism. So on June 19th, uh, Constantine was present. He opened with an address on the need for unity. Um, somebody read uh, this new creed that was introduced. The Constantine uh, suggested that they included this word. Um, I mean, the, the Greek was homoousios. Uh, it was like of the same substance. Right? This, this would become an important word. Um, the proposed creed was discussed. They made a final version of the creed, which you've got in front of you. Um, so when it, at the top of your page where it says the Nicene Creed of 325, this is what they ended up with. And when we start talking about the theology, we're going to read this, and we're going to highlight certain parts of this. Um, over time, so th this isn't the final version of what we use today. So when we say the Nicene Creed today, this is not really the text of what we mean. Uh, but this is what they came up with. They required everybody to sign it. Almost everybody did, including the guy that was proposing Arius's views. So Eusebius of Nicomedia signed it. You might ask, how could he possibly do that? Um, well, some of the language was not incredibly technical yet, right? So they were using words in this creed which were intended to exclude Arianism, but were open to interpretation. And so people could read their own theology into some of these words. Um, so everybody but two people signed it. The two people that didn't were declared heretical and deposed as bishops. Constantine stepped in and also kicked them out of their cities. He banished them from their cities, probably to avoid more unrest. Um, unfortunately, this established a precedent for civil authority to start stepping in to church matters. And this would become a real problem later on in this, this Arian controversy. Arius himself was banished, and uh, ideally, things would have stopped there. Um, Things didn't stop there. Uh, Alexander of Alexandria died in 328. A guy named Athanasius became bishop. Uh, Constantine eventually brought Arius back from exile. Um, Constantine uh, eventually banished Athanasius, who devoted his life to defending Ari uh, to um, defeating Arianism. Uh, at least one emperor after Constantine was was Arian himself and his thinking and his theology. So at one point. 
most of the other Nicene, like kind of the people from this Nicene council, uh, the, the leaders there had been banished. Um, Athanasius himself was exiled five times. Um, several church meetings or, or synods rejected the Council of Nicaea in a few ways. And it wasn't until around 381 that this controversy finally started to, to die down. Um, the emperor at the time sided with orthodoxy. Uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381 drafted a new version of the Council or of the, the Nicene Creed. And that mostly settled the matter. Arianism wasn't fully squelched until around the seventh century, but, but it wasn't the controversy that it was in the fourth century uh, after this point. So that, that was the history. So a lot of stuff going on, politics got involved, um, a lot of sides being taken, uh, a lot of people believe in different things and reading their own theology into this Nicene Creed. Um, by the time 381 rolled around, though, uh, some of the language used got a lot more definition. And so the, the creed of 381 was, was much better equipped, I think, to, to say, well, no, the, the, this, this is where the line is between orthodox belief uh, regarding the Son of God's divinity and unorthodox belief. So let's talk about the, the history. Like, how could this happen? When you're reading your Bibles, you're probably not thinking, well, obviously, the Son of God is, is a creature. Um, well, Ar Arius did. Um, well, before Arius rolled on the scene, or at least before he went public with his disagreement with Alexander, people were trying to figure out the relationship of the Son of God and God the Father. Right, again, like they didn't have 20 centuries of Christian thought and Christian writing behind them. Uh, they, they didn't have like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology next to them to just look stuff up. Um, and the Arian controversy was a result of how people were thinking of God's nature. So there were some theologians, um, Justin, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen was a big one, who were trying to figure out like what, how do we think about Jesus? How do we think about the Son of God? Um, Christians were appealing sometimes to ancient philosophers in, in, to get credence for their beliefs, right? So that, that was kind of beneficial in some ways because they gained some, some level of credibility, I, I suppose, in, in, in the pagan world. But it also imported uh, some ideas that, that turned out to be unhelpful, right? So this idea of, of perfection being, um, just, their, their ideas there came, that came from Greek philosophy just were, were unhelpful to them in, in how they were thinking about uh, some of their, their theology. Um, combine that with like this allegorical interpretation of scripture so if you read something in scripture that just didn't seem to match up with your idea of what was perfect, you could just say, well, that was allegory. We'll just sort of explain this away. Um, at, at the time, th there was this, this idea of like this, this hierarchy of being. You had God the Father at the very top who was uh, completely fixed, immutable. I mean, we would agree with that in some sense. Um, at the very other end, you had creation, right? All the stuff that God made. Well, yet, at least to some people's thinking, you had to have something to sort of bridge the gap between God the Father and the rest of the stuff that was made. And so to their thinking, that was, that was the Word of God. Uh, not the Bible, but like the Son of God. Um, 
And the Son of God, or the Word of God, could directly relate to creation. So he was like this, this middle step between these, these two, between God the Father and, and creation. Um, well, this, that kind of view of reality doesn't really let God mix with his creation. And so you had two strands of thought. Uh, one of them was kind of cautious or middle of the road. Uh, that's what Alexander ended up, ended up taking. So he believed that in, in God, there were, there were three persons. And the, the doctrine of the Trinity hadn't been fully like, articulated yet, but he did believe that the Word of God was a, a person with a nature that was distinguishable from the nature of God the Father. Right? So we would, you know, we would say that there are three persons and the persons aren't the same. Um, he, would, he said that the Word wasn't a creature, that he was eternal. Uh, he said that he was eternally generated, that's the word he would use from the Father. Um, and that, uh, when we say God the Son, like this isn't just like an adopted son, like it was real. Um, and that he was co-eternal with the Father. So the Son had always existed, just like God the Father had always existed. Uh, well, you had kind of a more radical strand of thought though, and this is, this is the route that Arius took. Um, he, he carried some, some beliefs to maybe their logical conclusions or to extremes. Um, he wasn't original in a lot of stuff that he believed. Um, it's hard to say exactly where he got his theology, but, um, but his logic was this. I mean, this is gonna be a long quote by uh, a guy named, uh, uh, his last name is Kelly. So he's talking about God's essence. And he said, since it um, is unique, and, and by the way, th this is what, this is like the, the cornerstone of Arius' thought. This is where he, he started. Um, so since God's essence is unique, transcendent, and indivisible, the being or essence of the Godhead cannot be shared or communicated. For God to impart his substance to some other being, however exalted, would imply that he is divisible and subject to change, which is inconceivable. Moreover, if any other being were, were to participate in the divine nature in any valid sense, there would result in a duality of divine beings, or in other words, like there'd be two gods, not just one. Whereas the Godhead is by definition unique. So, I mean, Arius maybe started off in a good place in some sense, like he wanted to preserve there being one God, and this one God being uh, unique or transcendent, right? Or being perfect, uh, uh, he may have had his own version of what perfection meant, but uh, you know, if you talk to somebody and, they, and this person came to you and said, well, I really, I believe there's one God and that's really important to me, you would say, well, it's important to me too. So he may have started in good places, but he, he was a very rigorous, logical thinker. And so he ended up though with some conclusions that he thought logically followed from his basic premise of God being unique or indivisible. Um, so he concluded that the sun must be a creature. So if nothing can participate in the divine nature, divine being, well, God the Son must be a creature. God must have created him. Um, you know, when we say that he was begotten, that must mean that he was made. So that was one conclusion. Second conclusion follows that. If the sun's a creature and all creatures have a beginning, the Son of God must have had a beginning. So he said the sun was born outside of time. Before that, the sun didn't exist. 
Um, he, the, the phrase that he would use was, there was when he was not. It was a little catchier in Greek. So, en pate hate uk en. So, um, it was kind of kind of catchy there. Um, but there was a time when, when he was not, is what he would, what he would say. Um, so he said, uh, third, so, so first, the son must be a creature. The second, he must have had a beginning at some point, and before that he didn't exist. The third, and you should, you should if you're not already concerned, well, first you should be, but you should become more concerned. I mean, here's some of his other conclusions. Third, the son can't commune with the father and has no direct knowledge of him. Huh. So he, he said that even though we're, we're saying the Son is the Word of God or the wisdom of God, I mean, that language is right there in Scripture, um, those are only like courtesy titles. That was a little unflattering. So he'd say, well, like in God's essence, there is a Word of God and a wisdom of God that's like different than the Son being the Word of God or the wisdom of God. Um, we just call the Son those things just sort of as an honorific or an honoring title. Um, and the son can't comprehend an infinite God. Um, and then fourthly, he taught that the son can change, it could sin. The only reason that he didn't sin is because he just decided not to. Right, so this, this really is these are kind of problematic statements, problematic beliefs. And you could argue that that, that view of Jesus is not the real Jesus. Okay, you might be using the words that the Bible uses, but the meaning that you attribute to those words is totally different than what the Bible means. So Arius could say that God was three persons, but he was saying, well, these are very distinct beings, and the Son and the Spirit are not actually God. So when he says God, he means the Father. Um, he would point to particular Bible passages uh, that the Son was the firstborn or where Jesus says the Father is greater than I am. He would point to those and say, aha, well, clearly these things support my beliefs. Um, but these basically meant that the Son was a demigod and not the real God. Um, so this is what was condemned in the Council of, of Nicaea. So we... Uh, when we read the Nicene Creed of 325, we're going to read through this together. Um, we believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. Arius would probably agree with that part. But pretty soon, we're going to see an awful lot of text devoted to refuting Arianism and trying to clarify exactly who the Son was. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Okay, so, so things that Arias definitely would not have agreed with, uh, but things that are, are true. So Jesus is fully God. He's not partly God. We don't just call him God or the Son of God just because we're trying to be uh, honoring, right? And not just because he participates in some way in, 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 in God, but, but like he, he actually is God. He was begotten, he was not made. Right? There, there's a distinction there. By whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate 
and was made man, he suffered, and on the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So just a few things. Where well, you see the, the brackets there, those parts were removed from a, a later version of this. So if you read the, the, the final version, you're not going to see those parts there. Um, when it says to judge the quick and the dead, it's not like just fast people. So quick there meant like living people. And I know dead people aren't very quick because they're like, they just don't, they don't move. But uh, so when, when it says the quick and the dead here, the living and the dead is what that means. And in the Holy Ghost. Okay, well, not, not a lot said there. But, but the person of the Holy Spirit really wasn't the big thing at, you know, debated here at the time. Uh, so they, they didn't spend a lot of, of ink there clarifying uh, his person and his nature. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he w- was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, to all things that Arius or Arianism would, would teach, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And Catholic here just means universal, so that didn't mean Roman Catholic. Um, so the creed, so even though some of the language was more ambiguous than was, was helpful, um, clearly taught that the Son was God and, and, and condemned Arianism um, in, in no uncertain terms. Um, the, the final version you have uh, was a bit longer. This was mostly made in, in 381 of the Council of Constantinople. Um, I'm going to focus down, down on the, the version, or I'm sorry, the, the fourth paragraph. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord the giver and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So that phrase, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, um, that became a big point of contention later on between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And the, the big split between East and West uh, in 1054 was uh, in large part due to that, that phrase. So the, the Eastern Church just wanted to say that the Spirit proceeded from the Father. Western Church wanted to say a Father and the Son. Um, we would hold to, to the Father and the Son. Um, so anyway, that, just, just know that that became a, a big point of contention at, at some point in church history. So let's, let's talk about some, some takeaways here. Like why, why would this matter? Um, so first, theology is important. Some beliefs are so far from the truth that they are unchristian. So if you believe in Arius's version of Jesus, you are believing in a figment of your imagination and not believing in the true Christ. And if after like reviewing this, you know, the theology and, and like you, if you hold, or if somebody holds to Arius's view of Jesus, they're not a Christian. Like that view of Jesus is so far out of the bounds of, of reality that it's just not the real Jesus. And, and that Jesus can't save. The, the Bible says that, that only God saves. So if you're trusting in a creature, you've got some really big problems um, because a creature can't save you. Uh, it's important not to let cultural ideas slip into your theology. So uh, at, at the time, I mean, Arius, despite his maybe good motives, um, and desire to use, use scripture, um, 
he, he had some problems in his theology, very possibly influenced by this Greek philosophy. So we need to be very careful not to let cultural ideas of what is good or true or right slip into our theology. But it's easy to do, and it's hard to know that it's happening. Uh, and one way to do it, one way to guard against that, is to read people that have been dead for a really, really long time. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and you're talking and you're like, well, it sounds like we're agreeing on everything we're saying. Um, it, you, you know, realizing that, that, again, remember how I said that the, the words and the meaning are not always this, like you can say the same words but mean different things. Um, you can point back to a, a controversy like this and say, oh, hold on. I know where you're going off the rails here. Like, what you're believing isn't new. This was debated in the fourth century and condemned. Um, but, but reading these, these fourth century people or 16th century, right, just people that have been, been around for a while can help you identify when, when people say things that are just not, not true, um, despite how widespread certain beliefs are um, in today's culture, whether it's Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, um, critical race theories, uh, that, that type of thing. So reading, reading old people can, can help you find your blind spots. Um, you have to use, so another takeaway is, you have to use language that's not found in scripture to explain the language of scripture. And that probably doesn't sound right at first, so let me tell you what I mean. So I'm gonna say that again. You have to use language that's not found in scripture to explain the language of scripture. Okay, otherwise, you're gonna get into a, a big debate uh, and you're, you're gonna use the same words as other people who, who seem to disagree with you. And you're gonna be like, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't fight you on this because we're using all the same words. Like, I say that Jesus is God, you say that Jesus is God, and okay, like, but, but we're meaning very different things, right? And so like, how are we gonna resolve, how are we gonna talk about this? Well, we import, I don't, I don't wanna say import, that sounds bad. We, we use words that clarify the meaning of scripture. Okay, so when I say that Jesus is God, I mean he is of the same essence as the Father, right? So in God, there are three persons, but there is one essence, there's one substance. And the Son was eternal, just like the Father was eternal. And all of a sudden, you start using language like that, uh, somebody that comes to your door espousing some theology that's, that's really unbiblical, um, well, now you have something to really talk about, right? Because as soon as you start using language that's not in Bible to clarify the language of the Bible, um, you, 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 they're not gonna be willing to go with you in some of those places. Uh, John Calvin says that, that sometimes um, ungodly men, he's, you know, or people, right, men and women, ungodly men and women will treat ambiguity of expression as a hiding place. Okay, so people that want to say no belief but the Bible, no creed but Christ, or no creed but the Bible, may or may not have good intentions, but, uh, but you can believe all sorts of wacky things unless you're clarifying what the biblical language means. Um, and then finally, just beware a cult of personality. Arius was very popular. He was very good at propaganda. Um, you may have your favorite preachers, or teachers, or musicians, 
Um, and uh, it's fine. Like some people are, are gifts to the church. But it's very easy to ignore or miss false doctrine because you, you, you love the person so much, right? You're just maybe more willing to excuse uh, certain things that shouldn't be excused. So, uh, and, and it's very possible that some of Arius's popularity um, helped fuel some of this controversy. Um, and so today, we always want to ask, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures mean? And, and, and is what this teacher or preacher or musician um, teaching or singing about consistent with scripture? And that will that'll help keep you within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. So let me pray for us, and then we will go into our, our worship service or fellowship, I suppose, before, uh, before church starts. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. We honor you as God. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, we thank you for the revelation that we have in the scriptures. Help us to think about you rightly and help us to worship you rightly. Help us to speak about you rightly. Jesus, help us to recognize that in your divine nature, you have always existed. You had no beginning. There was never a time when you were not. You have always been there. So help us to worship you in the right way. And Jesus, we ask in your holy name, amen.